I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, Elise. How's it going? Uh, it's going well, Corey. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah. 
Uh, this is our last Maxi episode on Twelfth Night. And I'm very excited to talk about this subject with you. I know you found a lot of nice historical context to really bring listeners and us into like what was happening for Shakespeare when we talk about this group of people in England. Who are we talking about today, Elise? Well, you may be excited, but I'm buttoned up because we're talking about the Puritans today. Mm -hmm. She literally is buttoned up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for everybody listening, I am wearing a nice buttoned up shirt because... Mm -hmm. You know, I couldn't find my Peter Pan collar today, so... Place a flat top on, get some buckles. I did not wear all black. I yeah. feel like I missed the mark. I did too. I'm wearing a Buffy sweatshirt. That is... <laughs> mm -hmm. But yes, we're talking about the Puritans because as we've been reading Twelfth Night, we keep talking about how Malvolio is a Puritan and the characters seem to have it out for him because he is a Puritan. And we want to figure out why. And if you're like me... And you haven't thought about the Puritans outside of what you learned in school. Yeah. I thought it'd be good to go back and do a quick or not so quick refresher on the history of the Puritan movement, where it came from, and what it meant to be a Puritan in Shakespeare's England. Especially because in my memory, going back to my education, I'm thinking about Puritans and I'm conflating Puritans with pilgrims and other groups of that time. So mm -hmm. who specifically are Puritans? Especially as... We're two Americans. We know a lot more about the American Puritan experience and how it influenced America, but I know less about what it was like in Europe. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get into Elise's AP European History Lecture on the early Puritan movement. So let's go. First things first, we got to go back to the Protestant Reformation, which was started by Martin Luther in Wittenberg. You may remember from school that he nailed those 95 theses to the door of the churches in Wittenberg mm -hmm. and Huldrych Zwingli in Zurich. These were two academics. So these two are the two wings of the Protestant Reformation. These two men criticized the Catholic Church. It caused a big break because the Catholic Church was doing things at this time, like accepting money for sins. Right. So instead of doing penitence, you could just pay it off. Pay off the church to say you're absolved of your sin. Sounds like the American criminal justice system. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So the two major players in that criticism had their own followers, and these two groups of followers were disagreeing about predestination. The Swedish Huldrych Zwingli in Zurich, his group, they really didn't like anything Catholic remaining in the concept of what Christianity should be. And the Lutherans, the followers of Luther, weren't as hostile towards those things, such as wearing vestments, having uh, sacred images around. They also insisted that Christ was objectively present at celebrations of the Lord's Supper, while the Swedish members were like, no, he's like spiritually present, mm. not physically and I'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. By the 1540s, these two groups basically hated each other only slightly less than they both hated the Catholics. Okay? Okay. So England was Catholic. Henry VIII wanted to divorce his Catholic wife. The Catholic Church just wouldn't let it. Catholic Church said no. So he said, well, we're going Protestant. And he created the Church of England and put himself as the head and said divorce is a-okay. So now England is Protestant. Okay. And... English Protestants, so again, those two groups, you've got the Lutherans and the Swiss, 
the English Protestants were attracted to the Swiss Reformed churches. Oh. They liked the no statues, no stained glass or pictures. So just as Ministers far wearing... away from Catholicism as possible. Yeah. You're going to hear me say the word purge the Church of Catholicism a lot. Okay. Because that's what these English Protestants wanted. I see. Ministers wearing simple black gowns instead of vestments, no choral music, just prayer and preaching. Mm-hmm. So Henry dies and power transitions to his nine-year-old son, Edward VI. Henry's funeral has a lot of pomp, circumstance, ceremony, very elaborate, which placed it very firmly in that traditional Catholic, Catholic. mold. Uh-huh. Okay. Which some of these English Protestants who liked the Swiss Reform style weren't fans of. Okay. Edward VI, being a nine-year-old boy, <laughs> uh, was much more serious about Protestantism. Uh-huh. And he was, like I said, nine years old. Yes. So his heavily Protestant Privy Council really ran things. They started removing England's remaining Catholic practices. Mm. Um, so there were no more religious processions. Priests are no, uh, no longer otherworldly, so mm. they can abandon vows of celibacy. They can get married. The Privy Council also confiscated the sometimes enormous endowments of more than 4,000 foundations that organized prayers and masses for the dead, as well as destroying monasteries. They obliterated what they considered to be idolatrous images. Wall paintings were whitewashed and replaced with Bible quotes in English, tearing down statues or... Yes, they'd tear down statues, or if the statues couldn't be removed, they would smash their heads. Oh. Yeah. Very hostile. Very hostile. As a note for that Bible quotes in English, one of the major tenets of Protestantism, one of the major critiques was that the lay person, the average person in a mass could not understand the Latin Catholic mass and that the average person should be able to read the Bible in their own vernacular language. And that does make sense. That is a fair criticism that, of the that's Catholic a fair Church. Point. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another thing that they did sometimes, although it was less common because glass is expensive and England is cold and rainy, Mm -hmm. is that they would destroy uh, stained glass windows that illustrated biblical stories and replace them with clear glass when they could do that When it wouldn't affect the draft inside. Yeah. And they would also tear down crucifixions that stood on platforms in the middle of churches and replace them with the royal arms, literally putting the king in the place where God had stood. Oh, Yeah. yeah. In the place, really. Yeah. Yeah. So then in 1549, the king and parliament approved this new Book of Common Prayer as the new directory of worship that substituted English language Protestant services across the liturgical year for the traditional Catholic Latin ones. So this replaced communion service. The quote from the book I read, which is called Hot Puritans by Michael P. Winship, said that now the clergyman faced his congregation instead of keeping his back to them, spoke in English, not Latin, and reminded the laity of Christ's crucifixion by offering them bread and wine. So Mm -hmm. another big difference in the service was in the Catholic Mass, the priest lays down and reenacts Christ's sacrifice. And the Protestant belief was that, no, 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 Christ only sacrificed himself once, so we don't need to reenact it. Really advanced, really hardline Protestant clergymen also refused to call themselves priests because they did not perform that uh, sacrifice reenactment. They only accepted minister and preacher. The new communion service made it clear that Christ was physically absent in the New Lord's Supper. So Catholics believe in the transubstantiation, that when you consume the bread and wine as part of your communion service, it 
literally becomes the body and the blood of Christ. The Protestants believe that there is no transubstantiation and it is more mystical and Christ becomes real in a spiritual way. When the predestined saved within the congregation consumed the bread and wine. So if you were predestined, you would feel Christ's presence with you when you took the bread and the wine. Okay. This new book of prayer also kicked off a revolt in 1549 that left close to 5,000 people dead. Wow. And this is in England? This is in England, yes. Uh Uh-huh. So alongside this, this guy John Hooper comes to prominence. He's like the proto-proto-Puritan. He was a former Catholic monk and Oxford University grad who converted to Protestantism in 1540 after reading a couple of treatises by Swiss Protestants. He became a fiery popular preacher in London, and it's said that when he preached, the churches were packed. Mm. Uh, Like standing room only, people were standing outside to hear him. Okay. He saw himself as an heir to the Old Testament prophets, a messenger of the living and unchanging God. And as such, he modeled his appearance after them, wearing a long white beard. And his personality was so fierce that it is said that a man who sought spiritual consolation once knocked on his door only to go away when Hooper opened it. Ah. He's intense. Yeah, I'm imagining, like, going to, um, like, Balboa Park in San Diego, and then there's people who are, like, preaching, and they're very aggressive and very fiery, and they have a lot of opinions, and they're not afraid to tell their opinions to Uh those around. Yeah. This guy Hooper gets so popular that he is invited to do a series of sermons to King Edward and his court in 1550. At the court, he denounced the sins of England. Specifically with the Church of England, he criticized that the clergy still wore the vestments of the Catholic Church during service, and the laity having to kneel during the Lord's Supper as kneeling was a show of unbiblical idol worship. Ah, uh, uh-huh. He accused Edward's clergy that by refusing to purge the Church of England from all Catholic practices, they were stealing God's honor and glory from him. Mm. Hardline Protestants, like Hooper, saw the Catholic Pope as the Antichrist and a false prophet. Mm. In Hooper's opinion, not purging the Church of all Catholic things basically meant that you were still worshipping the Antichrist along with Christ. Mm. And this is fun, too, because at the same time, the Pope in Rome would say very harsh, cruel things about, like, Elizabeth, for example, jumping ahead in, Mm -hmm. in time. And so there's just a lot of tension between who is, like a real leader in whatever sense it is, you know, she was a false queen, she was a false this, that, and the other. So I think it's interesting that, like, you see it happening in multiple instances. Yeah, and, like, before we even get to Elizabeth, like, Mm -hmm. the seeds of this start way before Shakespeare's time. Yeah. This guy Hooper was offered the position of bishop, but he refused it because he felt like it was still a holdover from Catholicism. The Privy Council basically kept pushing him and pushing him, and he relented and said, okay, I'll do it as long as I don't have to wear the vestments. And the Privy Council under Edward said, okay, sure. Mm -hmm. But then other bishops were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, we're not okay with that, actually. Mm -hmm. You need to make this guy do the things that we're doing. Yeah, wear the uniform. So uh, he was consecrated to the office of bishop eventually and did have to wear the bishop vestments that embarrassed him in front of his continental friends from Switzerland who were more hardline. And Puritans would continue to try unsuccessfully to get rid of these vestments for 150 years. And Hooper's defeat is often portrayed as the beginning of the struggle. Mm. This guy personally banned the practice of accepting money payments for sins. Instead, penitents were made to stand barefooted and bareheaded, dressed in white robes in public places and churches, confessing their sins. Oh, 
like Cersei Lannister. That's exactly what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of like yeah. bells ringing and shame, shame, shame. Yeah, yeah exactly. So uh, one guy, John Griffith, for example, had to stand in Gloucester Market for three Saturdays saying to passersby, I do this penitence for my naughty living and for fornication. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I don't agree with being able to pay for penitence, but like, that's isn't that what, I mean, I guess it's Catholic to have confession, but shouldn't that be enough to confess your sins? Right. No, instead you got to do it publicly. Yeah, for all your neighbors to see. So in the Church of England, you have this bishop's power structure, and the top is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Basically, the Archbishop of Canterbury at this time is very, like, go gently through reform. Mm. And mm-hmm. Hooper really didn't like that. But he was also only experiencing London and the surrounding counties, where there was this want to be more like the continental Swiss Reformed Church. In the more rural counties, go slowly was probably the better option, because if Hooper had maybe seen that more, he maybe would have calmed down a little bit. But the archbishop also put Hooper in positions to help direct those sorts of policy changes in the church. However, as we know from our intro series and what happens to Edward, Uh he dies. And then everything that they've been doing comes crashing down around them. Uh Uh-huh. King Edward dies on July 6th, 1553, and is succeeded by his half-sister Mary, who we know was a devout Catholic and determined Mm -hmm. to rip out the seeds of Reformation. I see. She publicly burned John Hooper for heresy on February 9th, 1555. Uh At least 280 Protestants, including 56 women, chose the flames above converting to Catholicism. Mm Mm-hmm. However, most Protestants chose to just outwardly conform to Catholicism, and an underground Protestant church met in London throughout Mary's reign. Okay. In addition to that, about a thousand Protestant men, women, and children fled abroad and lived in exile, including another guy who's major player, John Knox, who landed in the German Lutheran city of Frankfurt. The Protestants who were in Frankfurt decide that their major sin had been that they were still too slow in purging English Protestantism of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. They start their own church with permission from Frankfurt's government in order to create an example of what a truly reformed English church could look like and to hopefully be an example to other English exile cities and other English exile churches on the continent. A major element of this church was strict discipline that taught all church members to, quote, frame their wills and doings according to the law of God, Mm. unquote. Mm -hmm. There was a heavy dose of edifying sermons as a foundation, but basically all members were supposed to be godly busybodies, continually, quote, admonishing and instructing one another, unquote. Uh-huh. So just telling each other what yeah. to do, how to live. Telling each other what to do, also tattling That's on a, each yeah, other. I was thinking that, too. I was thinking of, like, snitching. Snitching. Yeah. Yeah. So when this informal discipline failed, when just knowing that your neighbors were watching your behavior failed... Mm-hmm. Members were supposed to bring their concerns about each other to the church's governing body, which was a board of clerical and lay elders called the Consistory, later called the Presbytery in England. Okay, Presbyterian. We're going to get to Presbyterianism through this guy, John Knox. Okay. This is where it begins. That's wild. So these elders in the Consistory would not be appointed by a bishop, but were chosen with the consent of male congregants. They could excommunicate a member from the church, but the whole church, or the male adult members, because it's the 1500s, Mm -hmm. had to determine that sanction, not just the elders. 
Worship was strictly biblical, and communal psalm singing was a huge part of it. This group, the Frankfurters, worked on a translation of all the psalms into metrical English that eventually became the Elizabethan publication Whole Book of Psalms, which was wildly popular and got 470 editions printed before the 1640s. Considering that this is... 1553, that's 470 editions in in a little bit under 100 years. So it's getting printed like four times a year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The Frankfurters found fault with that Book of Common Prayer that was produced in England. They called it not Protestant enough because this was their big thing. It contained an ancient hymn that predated the Bible and therefore was what they called indifferent. So indifferent was like anything where the Bible didn't expressly say to do it or expressly forbid to do it. These hardline Protestants believe that they should only be doing things that the Bible expressly says they should be doing and not doing things that the Bible forbids. Okay. Knox was eventually run out of Frankfurt in 1555 and the Frankfurt church settled into a more moderate practice, but his influence would have a very long life. The church guide that he and his committee created would be published a year later as a form of prayers. He would take that to Scotland, where it would become the foundation for the Reformed Church of Scotland, which we know as the Presbyterians. Mm, Okay. And English Puritans would sometimes use it in secret and also repeatedly lobby Parliament to have it replace the Book of Common Prayer once they had Protestant rulers. Right. Knox also goes to Geneva with most of his committee and supporters. In Geneva... Uh, Knox encounters John Calvin, who had been working to get the Christian government of Geneva to work hand-in-hand with the consistory of the church, to the point where the consistory would be so independent from the government that they could excommunicate the ruler of Switzerland from the church. The group of English exiles arrived just as Calvin's 14-year struggle to establish this independence came to a bloody end. The 1554 elections in Geneva gave Calvin supporters a narrow majority in the city government, which allowed them to crush resistance to the consistory's autonomy. They won with some trumped-up charges against their opponents, Uh torture, and four beheadings. All in all, Calvin could be ruthless to achieve his means. So this is the very, they're not technically Puritans right now, but this is the Protestant moralist. This Mm -hmm. is how we- John Calvin. Yeah, who has been using, like, Really, acts of violence to gain a very Mm -hmm. small, slim majority. Yes. Interesting. So Puritans are Calvinists, right? Yes, they are. So this is that guy. Cool. And eventually, in Geneva, one in eight of the city's adults appeared before the consistory each year for sins. And the consistory's muscle was backed up by really strict laws. Just as an example for what it was like living in Geneva at this time, A Jesuit who passed through in 1580 commented that in the three days he was there, he heard no blasphemy, no swearing, and no indecent language. Hmm. Because Because that's not allowed. You'd be brought up before the consistory and fined by the government because they were working hand in hand. Wow. However, (laughs) because there is nothing in this time period that people agree on, Uh the Geneva team disagrees on some major points like predestination. They all agreed that the Bible taught that God had predestined the elect to heaven. Mm -hmm. However, Calvin and the Genevans also said that God actively predestined everyone who is going to hell, and God decided this before time began. This produced some violent disagreements among Swiss Protestants, 
some really didn't like this idea of double predestination because it doesn't glorify God, that God is the one who chooses who goes to hell. But Puritans would wholly embrace this idea, and for a while it became the unofficial doctrine of the Church of England. Okay. So meanwhile, England's becoming more Catholic. The English people who are living outside of England because they're Protestant start publishing virulent arguments encouraging armed resistance against rulers like Mary, even going so far as to say that female rule was repugnant to nature and that nobility and the people should overthrow female rulers. Great. Cool. That sentiment did not age well. No. Within a year of those arguments being published, Mary was dead and Elizabeth became queen, so they now had a Protestant queen on the throne. And she did not like that they wrote this. So she barred Knox from England and held Calvin ultimately responsible for people saying these things. Uh Puritanism never really shook off its association with disloyalty to the monarchy first created by these Genevan exiles. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we're inching closer and closer to William Shakespeare. To Shakespeare. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. England has a Protestant queen. The Protestant exiles who have been living on the continent return to England, and some even accept positions as bishops in the Church of England from Elizabeth. But it quickly becomes clear to them that Elizabeth is not going to help them purge the Church of Catholicism, even though she is unashamedly Protestant. So for the harder-line Protestants, the issue became not how to help Elizabeth push Reformation forward, but how to keep her from stifling it in comparison to her younger half-brother, who during his time had been very like, yes, let's go out and like reform the church. She's like, it's fine how it is. I like it. There were also these Catholic parish priests who had gotten their positions during Mary's reign. And when all the English Protestant priests had left or given up their positions because they didn't want to be Catholic during Mary's reign. So now there are Catholic priests in those positions. Mm -hmm. And those guys don't give up their positions. So they choose to just, in air quotes, convert to Protestantism uh-huh. rather than resign, even though they don't really commit to practicing right. Protestantism. So they're preaching, but they're not really doing the Protestant thing. They're just like they're saying, saying they they're are. Protestant. Yeah. They're doing the same things they've always done. Okay. They don't really understand even what Protestantism is, mm-hmm. probably. Mm-hmm. And then we have Protestant pastors who start to preach ahead of the laws of England and ahead of the policy of the Church of England, trying to push, at least in their congregational sphere, push their congregation towards that more pure Protestantism. They were able to do this because Elizabeth's attention to the church was sporadic, (laughs) but when she did pay attention to it, she had no sympathy towards the ideas of Reformation and detested their disregard for her authority. Mm. By fall 1564, she concluded that these non-conforming ministers must be made to obey the law, And along with her Archbishop of Canterbury, Matthew Parker, they worked to cajole ministers back to wearing that vestment that John Hooper had such a problem with, Mm -hmm. right? I remember that. It's all about the clothes. Yeah. Which is funny. So much of it is about the way that you're presenting yourself. Mm -hmm. They're really not focusing as much. Some of it is on the actual beliefs, but so much of the struggle seems like it's on how you're viewed what you look like, what you identify as. How worship looks. The theater around worship. Yeah. Yeah. What worship looks like rather than... The actual relationship that you have with God. Or the liturgical content. Right. So Parker, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was a Protestant who outwardly conformed to Catholicism during Mary's reign rather than go into exile. 
So he was kind of of the opinion that if he could endure Catholic worship, his ministers could endure wearing that damn garment. Uh No offense to any Catholics out there, but he was like, I had to be a Catholic for (laughs) X many years. Like, if I can do it, you can do this small little thing. The things are not the same. So the result of that, because it did not go over well. I didn't imagine it would was a 1566 purge of London nonconformist ministers that became known as the Vesterian Controversy. Uh One result of the Vesterian Controversy was the emergence of the term Puritan as an insult. Oh. So this is where the term Puritan first really comes into the vernacular of the English people. Vernacular. Mm Mm-hmm. Basically, it was an insult that went towards ministers and laypeople who refused to conform to the Church of England's requirements that fell short of their high Protestant standards. Okay. One of these purged ministers was Percival Wyburn, who, along with a few other Puritans, returned to Switzerland in 1566 to ask the religious leaders there to intervene in England. Zurich Protestants were like, Well, the Church of England doesn't actually violate the Bible, so they should do what their government commands. The Zerg team was okay with indifference. Okay. Right? But Geneva, which has always been more militant, Uh they were of the opinion that if the English Reformation doesn't pick this up, God is going to pour down his wrath upon the most powerful Protestant country in Europe. As the most powerful Protestant country in Europe, England must be saved. Something has to happen now. Otherwise, all hell will break loose. Exactly. God will punish Mm -hmm. us. Wyburn returned to England to find that Parker's purging hadn't been successful. Other bishops outside of London had refused to enforce it, so ministers who were deprived of positions in and around London basically could go into the countryside and get jobs. Mm -hmm. In Northamptonshire, Wyburn got connected with a wealthy landowner named George Carlton and other Puritans who were members of the landed gentry, Landed gentry is about 10,000-ish interrelated families of privilege who shared governance of England and ownership of half its land mm. with the aristocracy, which are about 75-ish families at the top of society who have titles. Yeah. Carlton was also a justice of the peace, and he believed that this made him like a mini Elizabeth <sighs> because the justice of the peace was a magistrate, a ruler, like the chief magistrate, the Queen of I England. I hope he didn't tell her that. Uh, yeah. (laughs) I don't think she would have reacted well. So, therefore, even if the queen was neglecting the task of promoting God's glory and enforcing obedience to his law, that did not relieve Carlton of his duty Mm. to that on a smaller scale. So I think this is where we start to see this idea of the country magistrate who is very, like, hoisted on his own petard Mm -hmm. and thinks very highly of himself and really doesn't know anything. Like a dogberry. Yeah, I'm thinking that, yep. So together, Carlton and Wyburn start holding these things called prophesying, which is like professional development for ministers. Three ministers preach sermons in succession on the same scripture text, and there would be a moderator commenting. Then they'd go off with other ministers and get evaluated on their performances and personal faults in the interest of sharpening their preaching skills Mm -hmm. and doctrinal understanding while building professional solidarity. So we're going to streamline. We're going to streamline. We're going to kind of like come together as ministers and share best practices and help each other be better Mm -hmm. at this. Yeah. Many in attendance at this Northamptonshire prophesying later became Puritans. And at the outset, this had support from Northamptonshire's bishop, 
because a 1560s survey showed that only nine of his 166 ministers could actually preach. Interesting. For the Church of England, like, things were not going well in this little corner of the country. And so it was very ripe for the Puritan ideas to start taking hold and spreading. This was also a kind of spectator sport would better for the ladies. They would come than and his shadow. watch and then go off and like talk and have their own opinions about the ideas that were presented. This was big event, big conference. Yeah. I think satirists also went to some of those, which I'll talk about later, but satirists yeah, yeah, would yeah. attend and see what was going on. Yeah. Wyburn and his cohorts got Northamptonshire's government to issue a series of reforms to help cast a Genevan style of piety over the town. There was a provision in these laws that a sermon was to be preached in one of Northampton's four parishes every Sunday, and anyone not in attendance who chose to do literally anything else, like even take a stroll during church time, could expect a fine. And then there were these sworn men in each parish who could write up any drunkards, fornicators, scolders, blasphemers, whores, or other sinners, much like Dogberry's Watch, Yeah, who get conscripted to help watch the town. Regulate everybody. Word of all of this got back to the bishop, who shut it all down in 1572. But it was a little bit too late because activist Protestantism had become entrenched in Northamptonshire, and the government of Northamptonshire protected some of these Puritan practices, and the gentry continued to choose Puritan clergy for their parishes when they could. And then there were similar happenings happening all over other villages in the English countryside, so that by the middle of Elizabeth's reign, Puritan control was kind of all over England. Mm -hmm. So to sum it up, at the time Shakespeare's writing, in the countryside, we have this growing movement towards Puritanism In the city, Puritan is kind of an insult. Puritans, in their own eyes, are exemplary English people, the most faithful, most aggressively intolerant defenders of England's version of Protestantism, and the most zealous anti-Catholics. Okay. They're not afraid of opposition. In fact, for them, it just proves that God has predestined the majority of people to hell and that the ungodly are the enemies of the godly. But certainly, the early modern person... Their neighbors were not going to be happy when Puritans are campaigning against sins like drunkenness, dancing, theaters, Christmas, fornication, maypoles, and like we were saying, Sunday recreations, doing anything on Sunday. Puritans really wanted to see the religious tasks and the monopoly of the Church of England. However, they were upset that the Church of England was only following God's law erratically, in their opinion. And therefore, it wasn't doing its job well. Okay, so they were upset that, like, picking and choosing versus just Mm -hmm. everything from front to back. Right. And it continues to remain far behind the continental reform churches in purging itself of its Catholic past. Uh Uh-huh. So that's where we get to when Shakespeare starts writing. And we can start to see Shakespeare's opinions on Puritanism in specific plays. Yes. In addition to Twelfth Night, we can see it in Much Ado About Nothing, All's Well That Ends Well, and Measure for Measure. All four of these plays contain parodies or criticisms of Puritanism. Dogberry, like I mentioned earlier, is a caricature of that puritanically-minded local... Kind of like a vigilante for Puritanism. A little bit, but also he's in an office. That is true. A government office. So he's a bailiff. Um, He's kind of like Carlton that I mentioned earlier, who's Mm -hmm. got this local office, local politician type, and is very self-important. 
Yeah. And this is becoming more and more familiar in England. Dogberry, as a character, his speeches mix legal, administrative, and puritanical theological jargon. For example, uh-huh. in the interrogation scene, he asks Conrad and Baraccio if they serve God, and then he gets confused when Claudio is accused of plotting to disgrace Hero and says, quote, Oh, villain, thou wilt be condemned into everlasting redemption for this. Then, when Leonardo thanks him, Dogberry swells with pride and says, quote, I praise God for you. God save the foundation, unquote. The word foundation was a favorite among Calvinists who, quote, used it to signify the politico-religious fabric and society it was their aspiration to erect, the Puritan state, unquote. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Still, in that play, the criticism of Puritanism is mostly implied and the movement itself is not mentioned until we get to Twelfth Night. Yes. Welcome, Malvolio. Where it gets more on the nose. Yep. We've talked about Malvolio Mm -hmm. before. In contrast, we have Olivia, who exemplifies a refined, half-Italian culture, like the culture of the Italian Renaissance that had been flowing into England, Mm -hmm. versus Malvolio, the Puritan, and how the Puritans were seeing this Italian Renaissance influence as a flood of half-pagan, half-Catholic, frivolous dalliances. Uh Uh-huh. Then we also have the other contrast against Malvolio in Sir Toby Belch, yeah. which represents the English cakes, ale, taproom jokes culture. Yeah, the party boy. That were scandalizing to the Puritan movement. Uh-huh. And then, uh, you know, when James ascended to the throne, he brought a lot more puritanical politics to early modern England. Remember, he's the guy behind the witch hunts and the mm-hmm. trials. Yep. One of his first acts of his reign was to forbid the mention of the name of God on stage and even the appearance of the sacred name in the text of any play. Along with this came a rigid reform in court manners, including the revival of an old obsolete law that forbade any divorced person to remarry during the lifetime of either party under pain of death. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which is, you know, ironic coming from James. Oh boy, yeah. Yeah. We can see Shakespeare's reaction to that in Measure for Measure, where the obsolete law of the Duke parallels that of our first Stuart monarch. Measure for Measure asks, does society have the right to regulate morals and what is meant by morality? And in addition, there's a character, Angelo, who is another Puritan character along the same lines as Malvolio. He's got an exalted view of himself. He's legalistic, makes a huge parade of virtue, calls himself a saint. Mm -hmm. But he's pretty narrow-minded and insincere in his beliefs. And then in contrast, there's the Catholic Isabella in that play, who is very pure, virtuous, genuinely religious. The contrast between them is further illuminated in their second scene together, where Isabella is asked to come out of the convent to help her brother. And she appeals to Angelo, the local magistrate, He, in their second scene together, offers to free her brother if Isabella will have sex with him. This goes against her true beliefs in Catholic teachings of maidenhood, so she refuses. And the audience sees the mask of virtue drop from Angelo, like Malvolio. Exactly, yeah. And they can see how truly depraved he is. He's a hypocrite. He's a cad. And he's also going to lie to destroy Isabella's reputation. Uh So we can see an even more pointed critique in that play. But we're here today to talk about Twelfth Night. Yes, we are. And that means talking a little bit more about Malvolio. Mm -hmm. And Corey, I know you read a lot about how Malvolio is a criticism of the Puritan movement. Yes. Tell me more. I will tell you more. So piggybacking off of what you're talking about where, you know, there's the Puritan movement that is rising and there's this reaction from Elizabeth as well as other Protestants 
the relationship between this play and the ecclesiastical disputes of Elizabeth's reign is seen in Malvolio. Malvolio is duped by Mariah through an absurd and egotistical reading of the forged letter, and the defenders of anti-Puritanism theory argue that this is the inherent danger in Puritanism's essential and foundation principle of the absolute authority of the Bible in all matters of religion. So what the Puritans believed in was you follow things to a T. So right. you read the like Bible, literally. you literally follow it, and Malvolio, he determines to follow the letter, and he does obey every point of the letter within what he assumes to be this letter for um, for him from Olivia. And right. Malvolio exemplifies the symbolic action of a Puritan's approach to scriptural interpretation in the spirit of self-love or bad will. At least so in the eyes of someone like Shakespeare who writes critically of the Puritan movement. So Anglican theologian Richard Hooker criticized that Puritans pull from the Bible, quote, what strange fantastical opinions soever at any time enters into their heads. So like one of Hooker's Puritans, Malvolio receives a false manifestation and pulls whatever he can from it. And correct Christians achieve salvation by correct belief derived from the Bible, but Malvolio interprets and believes, quote, such impossible passages of grossness in perverse spirit. So this letter, you talked a lot about the relationship building up to where the Puritans are in Shakespeare's time. The Church of England and the Puritans believe the Holy Scripture contains everything needed for salvation, but the rift comes from the uh, Presbyterian Puritan Reformation policy called an admonition of the Parliament, which is from 1572. And the admonition requested Elizabeth eliminate, like you said, the remaining elements of Roman Catholicism. And Elizabeth, like you said, denied this request as irrational bibliolatry, indifferent to salvation. And so that's where the tensions continue to rise, like you were saying, in the 1580s and 1590s. And in response to the loud Puritan dissenters, the establishment of the church preached, wrote, and fought against the Puritan movement. Archbishop Richard Bancroft preached in 1589 that the Puritans' interpretation of the Bible was not determined by reason, but by passion, quote, sick of self-love, unquote. Right. I didn't mention this in my in my reading, but it was there. These Puritan ministers going to these prophecyings, it wasn't a liturgical service in the way of we're going to read the section of the Bible that is for the calendar. Liturgy is a planned calendar of what parts of the Bible are read at Sunday service throughout the year, so that in a calendar year, you read the entire Bible. So these prophecyings, they started doing more like just speaking off the cuff. Ah. Their sermons were more, you know, I memorized it, and I'm just going to go from what's in my head and talk rather than make the Bible accessible to my congregants. Mm -hmm. And then what that does is that then means that whatever it is that the preacher is saying or the minister is saying is what the congregants are gaining, not the right. actual written word. So that's completely self-love in the sense of like, here's what I read, I'm going to process it, and I'm going to share how I view it, what yes. I want you to get out of it. Yeah. Right, right, right. So that's, again, that Malvolio interpreting his text the way he wants to yeah, instead of a kind of codified is codified the right word kind of up for yeah, what the what... person wants to determine it to be yeah meaning is up for grabs right malvolio completely does that in the letter scene and bishop thomas cooper wrote that the puritan comes to scripture like malvolio does to his letter bent upon discovering his own justification uh he writes quote if i could make that resemble something in me and i believe that would be malvolio not the scripture but that's something that malvolio says 
And so to Cooper and Bancroft, Puritans are not concerned for the understanding of those things which are spoken in the scriptures, but to impose meaning upon them, like you were saying with the prophesying, not to deliver the true sense of them, but to bring a sense of their own, not a yielding to the words, but a kind of compulsion, enforcement, or violence offered to make that to seem to be contained in them, which they presumed should be understood by them before they read them. That's fascinating criticism because basically it's saying, no, you're reading into this things that aren't there, even though you are saying that mm -hmm. your entire goal is to strip away and only follow the Bible like exactly as written and like do away with that indifference. But you are just interpreting what you want to into this. So you're picking and choosing parts of the Bible to follow. Uh huh. That doesn't sound familiar at all. <laughs> no, not at all. And the other thing is they're doing this or they're planning to do this with congregants who maybe haven't read that part of the Bible yet. So the congregants are walking away with mm -hmm. this Puritan interpretation based on what this particular preacher or uh, minister is Same. deciding is important for them to know. Right. Yeah. So Hooker, Bancroft, and Cooper all write and preach how Puritans look for themselves in the scriptures instead of seeing what is actually in the scriptures. And this is happening before Shakespeare's time, but not too much ahead. And when Malvolio stumbles upon the mock letter and imposes his dream upon the words, he proves in the process a contemplative idiot. And this declared madness, the establishment, the establishment, the uh, Protestant establishment, would insist is an inevitable state in the Puritans' progress. And there is a moment that backfires against the Puritans. There's a demonstration of this madness when two men claimed the arrival of Jesus Christ in the person of William Hackett, who was an illiterate man with a shady past. And the Messiah's day of judgment was to release from prison some Puritan ministers and depose Elizabeth. That's what this guy was going around saying as part of being a Messiah. And mm -hmm. so suffice it to say, there was an examination of this Messiah, William Hackett, and he was hanged and quartered, and Archbishop Whitgift took this moment to discredit the entire Puritan movement, claiming these ideas are all made to be the insane fixation of Puritanism. Malvolio is also made to madness in mm -hmm. the darkroom scene. But back to the MOAI, uh, Malvolio says, MOAI, the simulation is not as the former, and yet to crush this a little, it would bow to me, for every one of these letters are in my name. He has this much forced riddle of M-O-A-I, and that allows Malvolio to find himself in the words. And this is like the Puritan's absurdity to, quote, leaveth the meaning and the inward grace, unquote, or strictly find meaning from himself. So I think that's really fascinating that once Malvolio has discovered his name, he is assured of his calling and he interprets what's instructed of him, much like the Puritans. And so that was what was happening from the establishment how they were viewing, interpreting, and writing and preaching against the Puritans. Puritan agitators were involved in arguments of the state and meddling with the queen's prerogative. Puritans wanted to overthrow the hierarchy, so therefore the establishment disliked them. And in this light, we can view Malvolio as not only social climbing, he's lording um, his power over the lady of the house, he's controlling newly acquired kinsmen like Sir Toby, and he's overthrowing the foundation of order in Olivia's household. And you mentioned how foundation was an important part of Puritan rhetoric. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what he's trying to do. He's trying to strip. He's trying to take everything away in this household yeah. and put foundation the foundation. Is the word for the Puritan state that they want to mm -hmm. create. And really, Malvolio tries to do that when he starts daydreaming about what it's going to be like being married to Olivia and having more power and control over the people that he views as drunkards or the general right. Londoners that we've talked about. Mariah, yeah, because he's going to, if he literally marries Olivia, it's going to be a union of church, his beliefs, and her power. 
mm-hmm. he's going to be able to be lord of this land. Yeah. And we do know that he likes to punish people because he puts the captain in prison for the entire duration of the play. And we don't find out until the end that the sea captain was even imprisoned by Malvolio. Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) And dramatists and the actors engaged in anti-Puritan attacks by their own mouths. This means that the attacks and commentaries on Puritan scripture were gathered from the sermons of Puritan ministers. So satirists of the 1580s, this would have been before we really see Shakespeare engaging in this anti-Puritan or Puritan critical writing in his plays. But satirists of the 1580s attended Puritan meetings for a lark. That's why we see a lot of stuff that's written within the same language of the Puritans when they're satirizing them. And one part that I thought was really fun because it's linguistic, during the 1590s, there was a very divisive controversy over predestination, which you mentioned. The Puritans and the Calvinists believed that holy and predetermination The Protestant Church of England did not believe in predestination absolutely. So like the Puritans, Mavolio reads the letter and the scripture under the predestination law. And um, this is something that leads many of the Protestant English bishops to write very critically of Puritans. And Mm -hmm. um, we see this when Festi plays a priest. He says to Malvolio, quote, leave thy vain bibble babble. And the ecclesiastical controversy enriches this phrase. Preachers of the time talked about vain babbling, vain babblings, and beeble babble, beeble babble. Those were all phrases that Protestant bishops used when preaching against the Puritans. Whoa. So within that scene, we have <laughs> I mean, just a, Yeah. So in that scene and in like the letter, because we've also talked about the Ajax. Yeah. You know the jury joke. There's just so many yeah. layers in both of these scenes. It's so dense. Yes. But still so like approachable and understandable. You know, mm-hmm. again, like we don't necessarily have that like modern context but just knowing like how funny this actually was for Shakespeare's audience if you were a contemporary London audience that also like really didn't care for these Puritans I mean Puritans weren't going to be at the theater anyway so if you were a theater growing crowd yeah you were probably not pro-Puritan right you're in a safe space of fellow anti-Puritan yeah ready to hear some criticism of Puritans Mm -hmm. yeah whoa I know I love the vain babbling part because it's funny anyways, but it was rooted in actual heads of the church writing against these Puritans. It wasn't just Shakespeare making up silly things. Like, this is stuff that... It's a contemporary reference that Shakespeare's making. Yeah. Imagine SNL writing sketches that 400 years later are like, this is still funny. Oh, wait, there's like so much more in it than we we could possibly understand. Yeah, it was much more pointed. That would have made it even funnier. It's yeah. at least still funny, though. Yeah. There's also the tie-in of Malvolio's yellow stockings and cross-gartering that can be found in Puritan interpretations. There are segments of Timothy and also the second book of homilies in 1563 that talk about fashion, clothing, and the naked Englishman. The famous emblem of the naked Englishman, which is found in homilies, lies behind the conservative views in apparel that became powerful for Jacobean satire against the Puritans. So we all know that there were sumptuary laws. We've covered that for Elizabeth, who she likes sumptuary laws for the social ranks. The Puritans, this is a place where Elizabeth and the Puritans can actually see eye to eye. Not for the same reasons, but they both like sumptuary laws. Elizabeth for social ranks. The Puritans, because they had a reputation for sobriety of dress. And Shakespeare, as a satirist, has condemned Malvolio for both extremes. So you've got Puritanism on the one hand, where he's wearing probably black and grays, his costume before the letter scene. And then the foolishness 
of going outside of your social ranks, which is the other extreme of the sumptuary laws with the absurd yellow stockings and the cross-gartering. And then we have the added layer, right, of cross-garters being not only out of fashion, but like a fashion that Elizabeth herself did not like. Yeah. And then on top of that, (laughs) another layer, it doesn't fit him. So it's like out of fashion, doesn't fit him. Elizabeth hates it. And then you've got the Puritan part on top. Right. Right. Again, like it's something that still Uh looks silly, but the specificity a standard in comedy is the more specific, the better. Right. Yeah. That joke still works today in part probably because it was so hyper specific in the layers of it. I know. Wow. I know. I love that. Like you said, the gag still works, still works. But then if we lived Mm -hmm. in 1601 England, we would have been laughing for additional reasons. How much longer was this play because I know. of laughter? I like, know. And I bet you, too, the poor actor playing Malvolio at some point might have had, like, a tomato thrown at him or something like that. Yeah. Lastly, Malvolio, as a comic butt who becomes the antagonist of the Revels, appeals to the prejudices of someone like Elizabeth who, quote, preferred a Mary to a Puritan England, unquote. The Puritan party was attempting to push Sabbatarianism onto England was the technical term of attacking theater, bear baiting, May games, church ales, holidays. And in Malvolio's foolishness, he becomes a Mary in a Puritan England. Yeah, and Mary like M-E-R-R-Y, like like Mary Old England, England. right? Yeah, that also came up in my reading, the idea of like the Puritans were trying to take the Mm. Mary out of Mary Old England. Yeah. Yeah. There is a possible comparison between Malvolio and a uh, Calvinist slash Puritan English clergyman in Giles Wigington. I don't have a lot on him, but he preached in London. He engaged in undercover activity. He was a part of the Puritan secret press, and he was occasionally imprisoned by Archbishop Whitgift for being, quote, misliked for his anti-Christian behavior, unquote. It makes me understand a little bit more why Malvolio was such that mystery that we've been slowly uncovering this entire series of why did people love Malvolio so much so yeah. much and it's like well he's like a Will Ferrell character uh-huh he's so many layers of farce and satire about these many things that are happening sociopolitically and how could you not write down Malvolio in your copy of the play to remind yourself that that's the play that has yeah, that I know. in it. I know. I think that John Manningham's diary is a great way to look at that. So you've got Charles's copy of the folio where he writes down his favorite character. And then you also have that John Manningham. I mean, he doesn't name Malvolio, but he is so enamored. He just loves the entire plot line of Malvolio. And it is just funny, but there's like a ton to it that these audience members would have been picking up on. Yeah. Yeah. And um, while Malvolio is, like, shaking his fist, being like, I'll get my revenge on you, he doesn't. But the Puritans did get their revenge in 1642, when the theaters were closed. Yeah. Kind of prophetic, though. And thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. 
For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany, and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Comedy of Errors, Act 4, Scene 4, spoken by Luciana. They are loose again.